Welcome to the Shari Tzedek Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here you'll find a live recording of just about every sermon, Devar Torah, teaching, or story from our Arab Shabbat and High Holy Day services. We know that you wish you could be with us more often, and we understand life getting in the way is not a bad thing. To live Jewishly is to understand that just as important as it is that Judaism happens in the synagogue, it's even more important to live Jewishly in your home and on your way. So here we are, in your home, on your way, maybe even on your morning run. If you ever have any questions or want to continue the discussion, let one of us know, and make sure you check out our live stream and YouTube channel for more ways that Shari Tzedek is available to you on demand. Keep an eye on your shofar and email so that when you're able, you can be with us as well. Looking forward to seeing you soon. As I join many of you worshiping from home this evening, I'm reminded of my mom listening to High Holy Day services on speakerphone when she wasn't feeling well enough to attend. That was the best synagogues could offer in those days. We've come a long way since then. Many of you met or at least saw my mom before she passed away four and a half years ago. If you ever saw her, my guess is you remember her. First of all, she had this bright neon green shirt that somehow she decided was her temple event shirt, and she wore it to every temple event. Her smile was pretty unforgettable too, and she was beaming every time she saw me do pretty much anything as a rabbi. After all, she was the one who had insisted against my dad's better judgment to get me a guitar on my eighth birthday. My dad didn't think it would stick, that it would be a waste of money, but my mom saw the admiration I had for the cantorial soloist at our synagogue, and she believed in my eight-year-old aspirations. She drove me to guitar lessons every week where I was asking my teacher to show me how to play Baruch She was the one, along with my dad, who had sacrificed trips for themselves, really anything special for themselves, so that my brother and I could have what we wanted. My parents also made sure that we were able to go on every youth group trip, and coming from Colorado, those were not inexpensive. My mom did everything she could to support my love for the synagogue, my love for music, Even my love for theater, which helped me gain comfort speaking in front of large groups of people or iPads. My mom's smile was because she knew that her sacrifices for and advocacy of her youngest child had pretty directly led to my being able to find a career that made me so happy and in which I was giving back to a Jewish community that had given so much to her and her family and she wore that pride in an unforgettable way. That smile may have driven me crazy sometimes, but it also was my reminder of just how much I owed my mom for that support. Now it is 2021, so just in case you didn't meet my mom, I don't want you to miss out on the visual. Here's that smile on the day I became a rabbi. I don't know which newly ordained rabbi she was taking a picture with there. He looks even younger than that guy who opened the service. That smile was also beaming on my wedding day. And just when I thought I had seen that smile at its brightest, my mom became a grandmother. This was the first time they met in person. I took a picture of the first time they met on video chat right after Eva was born. But unfortunately, it's not a very good one. 
That was a really rough day physically for my mom. A lot of days were. I'm assuming that you could tell from the earlier pictures, even though those were moments where she was working really hard to not look sick. My mom had a lot that she was fighting against. She was diagnosed with juvenile diabetes at 11 years old. This was a time in which diabetes treatment was nowhere near as advanced as it is today, and the diabetes, along with who knows what other factors, took a real toll on my mom. She was diagnosed early with severe arthritis and osteoporosis and had numerous orthopedic surgeries and serious pain for most of her adult life. She had bad kidneys, she had multiple myeloma, and it seemed like they were always finding tumors somewhere. I hate to say it, but as she would tell me the latest thing that was wrong with her over the phone, there were points where I just couldn't keep track. In this picture, the last we would ever take together, my mom was 65 years old. The house Jason and I lived in at the time had two stairs to get in. We rented a ramp for her last two visits because she couldn't do those two steps anymore. 16 years earlier, when I left for college, my parents moved from the home I grew up in to a townhome in which the master bedroom was on the lower floor. At 49, it was already becoming more difficult for my mom to use the stairs, and a home in which her room was on the second story just didn't make sense anymore. It did have a loft for my brother or I when we would visit, but I still gave them a hard time that when my brother went to college and I wanted his room because it was a little bit bigger, I wasn't allowed because he had to feel comfortable that he was coming back to his home. I hadn't even unpacked my dorm room, and my childhood home was no longer ours. Of course, I understood. We're a family who jokes with one another. But I felt this meant that there had to be more conscious exercising by my mom as a result. They still had the loft, and I remember telling her that it was important that she still try to go up and down the stairs periodically while she could to make sure she could for as long as possible. I think she tried for a while, but it got harder. And there came to be a point where lying in bed all day in her nightgown watching talk shows, news, game shows, and more news beat out so many activities that would have kept her stronger, both physically and mentally. Seeing her in bed like that drove me crazy. She still went to physical therapy religiously, but I didn't understand why she didn't try harder in between. We knew things weren't going to get better, but I wanted her to try to keep things as good as they could be for as long as they could. Her diet also drove me crazy. Remember, she was diabetic since she was 11, but I'm not sure that I remember a day of my life that she didn't cheat. Cheating was what my mom said she was doing when she ate ice cream or cookies. She knew there were healthier options when she needed to raise her sugar, but they didn't taste as good as ice cream or cookies. As she got sicker, the cheating got worse too. I remember one meal, also right after Eva was born, at which she told the waitress she couldn't have black beans in her quesadilla because there were too many carbohydrates. Of course, when dinner was over, she ordered the key lime pie. Again, I thought if eating healthier would slow the deterioration even a little bit, why not try? Here's one more picture of that smile. Don't worry, she didn't eat the whole thing. I tried to talk her out of ordering it, but once it arrived, of course, I joined the rest of my family in eating it. Over the last 10 years of my mom's life, as I saw the deterioration getting worse and worse, I spent more time arguing over these two areas of frustration than I probably should have, and it put a strain on our relationship. 
I truly believed that a change in her behavior would still give her more time with us and more and one day with her grandchildren. And I knew that if there was anyone she would listen to, it would be me, her son, the rabbi. But when I brought it up, sometimes I would get in, I know, other times she would ignore me. A few times we were both in tears. This hurts me so much because of how much I care about you, I remember telling her. It also put a strain in my relationship with my dad. My whole childhood, my dad did most of the work around the house. My mom would be so tired after teaching in the morning and driving my brother and me wherever we needed to go. She would be in bed when he got home from work. As she got sicker, he was her primary caretaker. Of course, there were things that he disagreed with as well, but he defended her to the end. Even though she may have understood intellectually that some things might help in the long run and made her choices regardless, to blame her for her condition was to disregard the countless factors that were out of her control that led her to a point at which no decision was a good one. My dad knew that, and I wish I had understood it better while she was alive. I think she would have been more receptive to my message if I had delivered it with a little bit more empathy. So now, after sharing a little bit about one complex relationship in my life, I want to share another one. It's another in which I feel such deep love and so much gratitude for helping to make me the person I am. It's also one in which the relationship can also at times become strained as a result, but one in which I also must recognize that I can never fully understand the trauma of how they became who they are. I traveled to Israel for the first time in 1998, the summer before my senior year of high school. And while religious school, studying for my bar mitzvah and confirmation were all extremely important in giving me the foundation of knowledge upon which to grow in my Jewish life, while youth group and Jewish summer camp taught me the important role Jewish community could play in my life, those six weeks in Israel inspired a passion in me that nothing else could creating a connection not only to the land, but to my Judaism as a whole, as a religion, as a culture, and as a people that no other experience could match. Four years later, I was on a plane to Israel once again, this time with much more luggage and the task of finding an apartment, as I would be living in Jerusalem for the next nine months as a first-year rabbinical student at the Hebrew Union College. While security was a concern during my high school trip, unfortunately, it always has been. 2002 was a different story. Until Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated in 1995, hopes for peace in Israel were higher than ever on both sides. There was so much optimism after the Oslo Accords of 1993. Meaningful dialogue was taking place between Israelis and Palestinians, both in government and outside. The roads were being paved that could have led to a truly wonderful place. But peace was not what everyone wanted. Hamas and other Palestinian terrorist organizations responded to Oslo with suicide bombings, and a Jewish extremist killed Rabin in order to stop peace talks. By 1998, my summer in Israel, things had quieted down, and peace talks were resuming once again. But once again, those for whom peace was not the goal were able to stop it in its tracks. The second intifada began in 2000 as Palestinian jihadists began an increased attack on Israel's military and civilians. 
supposedly responding to continued growth of the settlements. As I was finishing college, I remember the loss of any sense of security that was left as we saw suicide bombings at restaurants and cafes. And on July 31st, 2002, as I was preparing to pack my bags for my flight to Tel Aviv, there was a bombing in the cafeteria of Hebrew University, killing nine, including Marie Marla Bennett, a 24-year-old from California who was studying in Israel at the time. She was a good friend of many of my friends and future classmates. Extremists and terrorists were winning. Israelis and Palestinians were becoming more divided both within themselves and from one another. The peace process was dying. Many students in my class understandably postponed their year in Israel. Much to my mom's chagrin, I did not. That year, I experienced the resilience of my Israeli brothers and sisters in a way I never could have imagined. Security was tight everywhere you went, but Israelis were living their lives, and so did I. I lived in Israel. I spoke to waiters and salespeople in Hebrew. Sure, they answered me in English, but at least I was trying. I visited Israeli friends from camp in their homes, in their apartments on their kibbutzim, spending Shabbat with their families. I made friends, I went to movies, I went grocery shopping, I got my hair cut, I paid bills. I heard the stories of so many Israelis. I lived in Israel and I loved living in Israel. Not until I met Jason and again when Eva and Judd came into our lives did I have the same experience of falling more in love every day with something I never thought I could love any more than I did the day before. That doesn't mean there weren't things that bothered me. I saw things that troubled me deeply, but in a strangely similar way to my relationship with my mom, those areas of frustration made me want to see Israel get better so that it would be here for my children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. This could lead to a similar strain on that relationship as well, but I recognized more consciously that even after spending over a year of my life in Israel, I didn't fully understand the Israelis' pain the trauma of having your mere existence threatened at every moment. So many having come to Israel after the Holocaust or other threats elsewhere against the Jewish people, only to lose those loved ones in war after war against those who would completely destroy you if they could. To have nations with nuclear aspirations for whom you would be their first target. To know that making the wrong decision in the other direction could lead to your destruction. This is a threat that, God willing, we will never know. Israel has to have a right to defend itself against attacks. And to, de and to deny that is to open the door to a mass destruction. Thank God Israel is good at defending itself. While there were scares and attacks during my year living in Israel, I felt safer there than I have in many places I've lived and visited. I was extremely grateful for Israel's defense force, for the security guards at every shop and restaurant I visited, and for the connection with the United States that guaranteed and continues to guarantee that Israel has what it needs to protect itself from senseless, hateful acts of violence. I also spent my birthday that year in line to receive a gas mask as the United States entered Iraq and fear of retaliation against Israel was high. Thank God I never had to use it but I learned firsthand the danger Israel faces not only from Hamas, but also from its neighbors. And again, I was grateful for the IDF and for Israel's strong connection with the United States. 
how to balance that need for security with taking the steps necessary to move toward peace is where that conflict and frustration can arise. The challenge is that while my mom's choices impacted her, with Israel it's much more complicated. The last time I went to Israel was 10 years ago, as one of my closest friends was finishing his rabbinic studies. Josh and I had actually become close on that high school trip 13 years earlier, and he had been living in Israel since 2004. Many of you met him at my installation a few years ago. Josh loves Israel as much as anyone I know, and in living there for so long, he was able to build a connection and have experiences that I had not known. Josh and his wife, Yael, had been part of a program called Encounter that takes rabbinical students, rabbis, and other Jewish leaders into the West Bank to meet Palestinians. Knowing Josh's experience, I asked him to take me somewhere I had never been in my four visits to Israel prior. Josh took me to the other side of the wall, into the West Bank, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the most tourist-friendly part of the West Bank, but it's not a stop included on the itinerary of most Jewish tourists. I went inside the Church of the Nativity, where most of the tourists stop, but we also took a cab to a restaurant 15 minutes away. We had a beer and a falafel, and probably the best hummus I've ever had. And while being careful, we talked to people along the way. I was a little afraid because I kind of look Jewish. And if I kind of look Jewish, Josh kind of looks even more Jewish. And, <laughs> and we were walking through the West Bank, getting in a taxi, asking questions and trying to have conversations. And I was afraid because even though I knew that the vast majority of Palestinians want peace as badly as I do, and as the vast majority of Israelis do, I also knew that if I ran into someone who didn't, I could be in a very uncomfortable and potentially dangerous situation. As we had conversations with the taxi driver and the owner of the restaurant, we listened much more than we spoke. And I learned that they had problems like we all do, but theirs were intensified by their conditions about which they rightfully complained. Even if they do support a two-state solution, how can they have room for hope when they see the continued building of Israeli settlements in the land that would be theirs? When they face the challenges presented by checkpoints, even though they're trying to work and live peacefully with Israel, when they see violent attacks and threats toward their people from extremists and ours, we listened. And while I understood from where much of what they said came, I also saw how much of an understanding they lacked of who most Israelis are and who most Americans are, and the role that Palestinian violence and leadership played in creating those conditions about which they complained. They weren't talking about the tunnels that were built to help terrorists avoid those checkpoints. They weren't talking about Gaza becoming a safe haven for Hamas after the settlements were disbanded there. But even as I disagreed with them, I saw them as humans with stories, humans who want to live their lives in quiet and peace, most of whom would be happy to do so if they really could, side by side with the Jewish state, humans who I believed would stand by Israel if they felt Israel were fighting for their best interests, but humans who could just as easily side with Hamas if they felt they had no hope with Israel. A strong commitment to and love of the state of Israel does not mean ignoring the humanity and needs of the Palestinians. Just as much as missile defense and secure borders are necessary for the protection and survival of the Jewish state, 
so too is an effort to understand the other, and so too is finding partners and methods that will help the other to understand us as well. I am a Zionist. I love Israel deeply. I also believe that for Israel to be here for my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, there has to be some kind of resolution to the conflict that goes beyond who can build the biggest bombs. While I support whatever Israel has to do to protect itself from immediate danger, I see that defense as a band-aid that does not cure and can, in fact, worsen the actual ailment. And as we've seen, there is a road that both sides have taken that makes it that much harder to go back. So my voice is often one, for whatever it's worth, that encourages Israel to continue to strengthen its efforts to protect itself in a way that recognizes the pain and trauma of their Palestinian neighbors as well, hopefully bringing closer a time when we won't have to defend ourselves, a time in which we're living side by side with the Palestinians and all of our Arab neighbors in peace, if not in my lifetime, for future generations. But my voice will also be one that is always willing to speak to those who disagree with me from either side, especially if their differing opinion is coming from that same love. But now let me go back to my mom for a minute. Yes, I could challenge some of my mom's behaviors, and yes, our relationship was sometimes strained as a result of my frustration. But there was never a break in our relationship. We both understood that our love was mutual and unbreaking. Not everyone was so understanding, though. She was excluded from former friend groups when it became too hard to have her join. And yes, my mom's social skills weren't the best, but when the Mahjong group at her 55-plus community created a no Vickies allowed rule, that was a bit more cruel than ever could have been necessary. So too with Israel. There is criticism that comes out of love and criticism that comes out of hatred. I sent you all a message during last year's conflict with Hamas and Gaza, reiterating that sympathy for innocent Palestinians cannot lead to sympathy for Hamas or for anyone who's trying to destroy Israel. Israel always has the preservation of life as its goal, while Hamas's goal is destruction of life on both sides, as they feel that leads it closer to its ultimate goal. To support Hamas is to support the destruction of Israel. To use words like apartheid or genocide with regards to Israel is to show a complete lack of understanding of the history and of the current situation. This is criticism with no love. This is blaming the victim. And whether from U.S. representatives or ice cream companies, this is often anti-Semitism. Whether one is enabling Israel or the Palestinians to act without any concern for the other, I believe they are taking us farther from that ultimate peaceful solution. This is a conversation that we can't cover completely tonight, but it will continue. And I look forward to opportunities in the coming year and years to study and discuss Israel's history, present, and future with you all. Hopefully we can even have a congregational trip soon. My relationship with my mom was far from perfect. But even as we had our challenges, there was never any doubt of the strength of the love between us or the sacrifices we would make for one another. I hope the same is true for all of our relationship with Israel. And just as I wish I had more empathy for my mom, 
I wish that more in today's world would have that empathy for the threat Israel faces, while maintaining empathy for innocent Palestinians who are also stuck in an extremely difficult place with few positive options before them. The stories are far from direct parallels, but I wanted to present them to you side by side because I think the similarities and differences are both important. I spoke on Rosh Hashanah about teshuva, about returning to past moments in our lives, learning from them, so that when they repeat, when they return, we will have moved forward, will be better than we were before. I focused on the last 18 months and what we've learned from COVID, but this is also the time in which we are performing teshuva in each of our own relationships, often with loved ones who can frustrate us, whose decisions we question because we love them unconditionally and want the best for them. We also look at each of our relationships with our own country, a country we also love, to which we're also grateful for the freedom and future it's given us. A country that, regardless of our politics, is sure to frustrate each of us as it makes decisions we think are taking us farther from where we think we should be. I pray that this may be a year in which we can seek to understand those relationships better. And in so doing, I pray that those relationships may find healing, more common ground. I pray that we all may understand that our differing opinions on a variety of issues most often come from that place of love. And when they do, I pray that we may find the space in which to discuss with one another, to learn from one another, and that we in our little corner of the world can be a part of bringing that world that much closer to a place of peace. Kenya Hiratsun, may this be God's will.